And you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world at cfmu.ca. It's my special privilege today to introduce a book launch that happened on Saturday. It was a Canada-wide book launch for Extraordinary Threat. The U.S. Empire, the Media, and 20 Years of Coup Attempts in Venezuela by Joe Emmersberger and Justin Podur. And of course, this is a book about the media and Venezuela, what you've learned or been told about Venezuela and its issues, and also what you weren't told very much about the six coup attempts involving the United States against the Venezuelan government in the past 20 years. And that forms the backdrop for the reporting or non-reporting on Venezuela. So it's one of those books that wants to show you that you have not been given the full story, to put it mildly, in the case of Venezuela. So the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War organized a book launch on Saturday, October 30th, and you can see the information at the website of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War at hcsw.ca. There should be a poster up a few posts back, And this book launch broadcast will also be going up today, so you'll be able to find it there. So without any further ado, I'm going to go over to the part where I introduced Joe Emmersberger and Justin Poder and begin discussion of the book. I'm going to introduce Justin and Joe, uh, who will be popping up in our feed. Uh, First of all, we have Joe Emmersberger, and he is an engineer, writer, and activist of Ecuadorian roots based in Canada. And his writing, which is focused on Western media coverage of the Americas, can be found on fairness and accuracy in reporting, as well as Counterpunch, The Canary, Telesur English, VenezuelaAnalysis.com, The Orinoco Tribune, and Zedcom.org. And Extraordinary Threat, co-authored with Justin Podur, is his first book. Now, Justin Odur is an associate professor at York University's Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. He's the author and contributor to numerous fiction and nonfiction books about Haiti, Rwanda and Congo, Palestine, and Afghanistan. He's a fellow of the Independent Media Institute's Globetrotter Project and has previously reported from many countries in the Global South. And he's the host of the Anti-Empire Project at P-O-D-U-R, Podur.org. Uh, so, uh, Allison, I'll ask if you can um, highlight our uh, panelists, Justin and Joe, get them up to the front there. Uh, we're going to unmute them. Uh, I'm going to ask to unmute. And um, we're going to be uh, launching into a discussion about the book shortly. Uh, and I'm going to let you know about the uh, comments section as well, about the questions from the audience, because this is going to turn into a free-flowing event. Um, uh, I'm going to ask Justin and Joe a few questions from the book, and it's going to get them talking about some aspects that may pique your interest, pique your curiosity about other aspects of the book. So at about 20, 30 minutes in, we're going to open up the chat, and people will be able to ask questions to Justin and to Joe. And I'm going to look through those questions and ask the questions from the audience, and you'll be able to drive the discussion. Joe and Justin will be taking your questions at the same time and just sort of a round-robin fashion, so uh, you'll be able to interact uh, with the, ho- uh, the panelists in that manner. So uh, 
going to be unmuting our guests. Let me just check there. And Justin and Joe are ready to join us. So both of you, you've written an extraordinary book that is very detailed, very thorough, and it raises, I would say, some powerful themes about how Venezuela is treated by the United States and covered by the media. And we can get into a bit about that today. But first, just let me thank you for joining us. And uh, we've got a bunch of people here excited to see you. So once again, uh, thanks for being part of this today. No, no, thank you. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming. And and thank you, uh, Brandon, Allison, Ken, and and all the various organizations that made this happen. Thank you, guys. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get right to it. There's some major issues that are covered in the book. We think we know Venezuela. I was talking to John Philpot before this session, and he was reading through the whole book, and he said, I've suspected a lot of things about Venezuela. There have been these things I've always suspected about how the media covers it, but no one's ever really put it into a detailed format that uses all the citations and proves everything. So you guys have uh, crystallized the way people want to approach this issue. Now, the first thing that caught our attention was during the Trump administration, especially, we had to go through this thing called Russiagate. Right. And, you know, there were these accusations directed against Russia that it took out maybe $70,000 in Facebook ads uh, during the election campaign in the US, that they may have hacked some emails, that apparently the KGB might have had a compromising tape on President Trump. And so the idea was Trump was working for Russia potentially uh, because of these little things they found. And this went on for years and years. And it was all we heard about in the media. And now a number of Alternative media journalists have debunked a lot of that story, but just the thought that Russia may have slightly involved itself in U.S. politics created an absolute uproar in the United States. So my question to you is, when we look at the United States' relationship to Venezuela and how it involves itself in Venezuelan politics, what are some of the ways in which the U.S. has inserted itself into Venezuelan affairs in terms of their internal politics and the parties and factions that are involved in Venezuela. Joe, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, first of all, it's important. One of the, our our mission in this book was very modest. You know, we're we're just trying to lay out a very basic basis uh, that Venezuela has a democratically elected government and that for the past uh, 20 years, uh, the United States and its allies have uh, ramped up a vilification campaign that's uh, tried to destroy it and now has, has just uh, morphed into such an ex- extreme version that, you know, we have Trump and by 2017 threatening invasion. We have sanctions uh, that since 2017 have, they go back further, but since 2017 have, have are responsible for tens of thousands of deaths, maybe by now up to 100,000. We don't know for sure. We don't have a, yet have a, a good mortality study, reliable one. And so what we wanted to do was just explain how it is that this uh, media campaign um, morphed in, into this, this, this just incredible uh, vilification of, of a democratically elected government. And um, I, I think one of the things we highlight immediately is just that it, it's very important in these kind of campaigns that the, this, the premise that uh, Venezuela is a dictatorship and it's starving its own people and it's oppressive and all that, it has to, it has to come from all angles. So it's not just enough, it's not enough for Trump to say it. 
you, it, you have to have this reinforced by people like Amnesty International. You have to have it reinforced by Human Rights Watch, by Bernie Sanders, by uh, you know Ro Khanna, by you know, even even AOC, or you know, and, and also of course Justin Trudeau and the European governments. So it just seems to come from anybody who's prominent. It just seems to come from all angles. Everybody's just reinforced. Maybe they'll quibble on the details about you know how intense the sanctions should be. Um, but they all just reinforce the same premise that that um, Maduro's government is a dictatorship and needs to be overthrown. Now, it didn't start off that way, it, it, but right off the bat, um, when Hugo Chavez was first elected in 1998, um, very soon afterward, there was a brief kind of honeymoon period when the United States was kind of feeling him out to see what kind of government he would be. But as soon as it was clear that he, he generally uh, was gonna chart an independent course, um, of the type that the United States has never wanted any government in America to, to, to chart, they were gonna ramp up this campaign to, to discredit him. And so we just, our book basically tracks how that propaganda campaign evolved over the last 20 years. Um, and you talk about US involvement in, in Venezuela. Well, it's always been involved. Uh, we talk about that going back even before Chavez, but, um, but in, in 2002, Chavez was briefly overthrown by uh, in a military coup. And the um, Inspector General of the U.S. State Department uh, did a report and said, "Yeah, you know, we were we were we were providing all kinds of support to, to uh, people who were involved in the coup, but basically, but then just concluded that it was no big deal, you know, because this, like you said, you know, when you mentioned RussiaGate, this idea that we have the right to do these kind of things is just so deeply entrenched that even when they admit to it and yet still don't see a problem with it, you know, it's just not something they." want to talk so we, we discussed how this this and there's all kinds of things like that different the ways the the, the uh propaganda evolved over the last 20 years so it's important in its own right because of the stakes you know we have uh, we have this murderous policies uh that our government canadian government's involved with so it's important in its own right but it's also important as a kind of really important case study to understand how we we get bombarded with this uh propaganda that the just basically intimidates everyone into assuming that, yeah, okay, you know, maybe everything's not uh, U.S. does isn't right, but sure, Maduro, you know, is a bad guy, and we should hope that he gets overthrown. I mean, that seems to be a big theme in talking about the present day situation where United States propaganda likes to assert that Maduro is a dictator. And so he's the dictator Maduro. Even if you talk to Bernie Sanders, for example, it's the, the dictator Maduro. So I guess my question to you, because you are you come out strongly in the book in the, in the first section on this topic. Uh, do you think Maduro is a dictator? Tell us about the election and uh, and, and how this uh, meme came about. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Judge, I already spoke long. <laughs> let Justin take this one. So yeah, we um, we wanted to we didn't want to try to. I mean, one of the things that I've admired about my co-author uh, Joe over the years is that he doesn't do this kind of concessionary uh, bargaining uh, argumentation about imperialism. So you know, when they try to get you to meet them halfway, like okay, well. U.S. imperialism is bad, but, you know, Venezuela is kind of bad, too, or Cuba's kind of bad, too. And Joe is just like, no, Cuba's Cuba's fine. You know, Venezuela's fine. Venezuela's good. Uh, we're not going to meet you halfway. Like, I think that's a really important. I mean, 
you know, we, we when you talk about like the rhetorical and uh, physical strategies of Israel, right? Like they don't do that. Like pro-Israel people don't meet you halfway. They never make any concessions. And it's like, we, you know, we're, we're, we are more concerned with the truth, um, not like defending the Venezuelan state, but like we don't, as people who are concerned with the truth, uh, capital T, whatever, uh, we don't make concessions to like half, half truths, right? So like um, the point that about Maduro here or Chavez before him is that he is as much of an elected, duly elected, democratically elected, if you want to call any of these systems democratic, as any Western leader uh, that's called, you know, in these paragons of democracy like Canada or the U.S. Um, you know, I think we could easily dispute the democratic credentials of uh, the U.S., which is almost a joke in terms of their voting systems and their uh, indirect elections and or the Canadians, you know, appointed Senate. And th there's all kinds of things we could criticize. But like the idea that these dem uh, countries are democratic while Venezuela is not. I mean, you could even you could make a better case for so-called one party states. But when you study one party states like China and Cuba, you realize they actually do have other parties. They do have elections for candidates. Those situations are also much more complicated than they're presented. But Venezuela has the same type of system as these Western countries. It has voting machines from the United States, from Miami. It has international verification for elections, which um, they try to now get the international institutions to boycott them so that they can say that they're fraudulent when they're not. Um, it is as, so, the, you know, our, our, one of our chapters is called, Yes, Maduro is a duly elected leader. And we go into exhaustive detail about that um so yeah it's just you, you know if you want to if you want to defend that argument like if you're if you're out there facing people who uh who are trying to tell you that uh maduro or venezuela is a dictatorship or something uh you will find plenty of of ammunition in our in our chapter on maduro yes i have to say you two are a little too modest because Again, I have to emphasize the book is extraordinarily well documented in terms of its assertions. So when you want to talk about what happened at the elections at the polls, what were the predictions and uh, the graphs and, and how it was supposed to look, that's all that's all taken into account. I mean, there's a lot that could be said concerning all the various elections and the U.S. attempts to delegitimize them. But behind this and behind this whole discussion, I suppose there is the lurking issue of the United States motive that obviously the United States has involved itself heavily in Venezuela's internal politics. And the question then arises, why does it feel it necessary to do so? And you would think that the answer is obvious, right? Oil, and that's everyone here might, that would be the first word off their lips, oil. And that's obviously an important part of it, but I think it goes deeper than that. So could you tell us what motivates the United States to involve itself so thoroughly in Venezuela? Yeah, well, Venezuela, okay. Venezuela has any country in the world has uh, some kind of natural wealth. OK, but Venezuela really is uh, extraordinary in, in the extent of, of what, you know, the world's largest oil reserve. So it has it has a, a significant, a very hugely significant amount of natural resource wealth. And with that comes the potential 
to provide an alternative source of financing for countries throughout the throughout the Americas. And under Chavez, it, practiced, it was doing that. So, and if you look, and we mentioned, and we cite the WikiLeaks doc, Wiki, uh, U.S. cables released by WikiLeaks, in which um, U.S. officials really—that's that's one of their perhaps their primary concern—is that you know Chavez, the government has this this ability to finance other people, you know, the Petro Caribe program in uh, the Caribbean that would uh, basically offered extremely favorable repayment conditions for for countries to buy Venezuelan oil. Um, it helped Argentina break free of its art, um, IMF IMF uh, loan so that it could uh, have more policy autonomy. So it has, it has the potential to be a regional player, uh, you know, whereas smaller countries that the United States have also been very preoccupied with crushing, you know, Haiti or Nicaragua, uh, it, not that they don't have any, any resource wealth, but they're, 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 it's not at a level where they, where they could realistically become like a finance, an alternative finance sphere for countries in the region. So we say that there's a, an extra incentive in the case of Venezuela to destroy them, but also that it's ideologically driven, you know, because you, again, when you look at the fact the United States has, has uh, gone out of its way to crush countries like Haiti and Nicaragua, it's, it's not, um, you know, the resource argument is there, it's not insignificant, but it's, it seems more ideologically driven, we'd say it's about, it's about destroying uh, alternative systems, alternative uh, uh, ways of, of, of governing that aren't relied on, aren't relied on the uh, reliance on the United States. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm just looking at two people here, Joe and Justin, who have extensive involvement in solidarity work with Venezuela, but with other countries as well, Haiti, for example. And in the book, reference is made to, you know, Haiti and the fact that the United States is uh, concerned about the threat of a good example there or an independent government acting in its own interest. So there's obviously a consistent pattern here. And when you look at one Latin American country that resists imperialism, you see patterns and similarities to others. And I'm sure that comes up uh, at times. You know, the, in the book itself, there's a big center section that has all six coup attempts against uh, the governments in Venezuela. I mean, this would be amusing if it wasn't so terrible that there have been six failed in time uh, attempts to change the regime. And that's a word you don't like to use, regime change. And you can, you can explain that if you like, but um, there have been these failed attempts. One aspect or theme that has come up a few times is this CLAP program, this uh, CLAP program, which is a domestic program in Venezuela that's involved in food distribution and so on. And there have been attempts to suffocate or strangle uh, that program. So the CLAP program, an initiative by the Venezuelan government, it's kind of telling first, like why Venezuelans might support these Chavismo type governments and also uh, how they're targeted. So can you tell us about what these CLAP programs are and maybe how bodies like the United States and Amnesty International has reacted to these types of programs? Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> the... You mentioned the six, and I mean, you could say that even since since we published, there's been another coup attempt. And while we were, while the book was in production, there was another coup attempt. You know, we were. It's hard to keep up. Um, and really, like since since they decided to appoint Juan Guaido as the as the uh, whatever you want to call him, um, appointed U.S. appointed. Uh, person who's supposed to run Venezuela when Maduro is overthrown. Um, once he was uh, 
brought onto stage. It's been, uh, you, you can't really separate the coup attempts. It's been kind of like a series of continuous rolling coup attempts. And, and in a way, the, the, the local um, food distribution committees, the CLA, so-called CLAP, the Committees for Supply and Production, I guess is the English translation, but that's also part of the evolving um, attempt of Venezuela to survive. So there's this dynamic of, which also exists with Iran, which also exists with uh, you know, Yemen, anywhere that, where the US specifically is trying to use sanctions to starve people to submission. What, whatever wiggle room they have, I mean, Cuba actually is the best example. They've, they've developed like a whole urban agriculture and an, an agroecological system specifically because, uh, you know, in response to sanctions. But Venezuela, um, they have these programs to distribute food. And prior to that, there was like um, a, more, a more indirect subsidy program where it was like more like a, you know, you could call it like a fair price shop or whatever, where the government subsidizes you to go to these um, to these shops, and you you can get um, food and toilet paper, whatever, all these uh, staples at at really subsidized prices. So what what uh, you know U.S. sponsored uh, you know organized crime, they basically uh, organized to purchase massive amounts of these things and then smuggle them across the border to Colombia. And sometimes they were sold in Colombia, and sometimes they were just dumped. Uh, in Colombia and destroyed. So the the clap actually was like, let's organize to make sure that we're actually getting these. So it became like a much more organized system to um, to make sure people actually get the products rather than um, you know being vulnerable to these kinds of theft um, and 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 uh, subversion of the program. So when you have what do you what does the U.S. call an organized system to uh, ensure people don't starve under sanctions. Well, they call it like government uh, control and patriot, patri um, what do you call it? Patronage and, and uh, surveillance. So there is a whole series of, um, you know, demonizing people for uh, trying to feed themselves and to feed the people of their country as a government, um, which is like you would think would be the primary goal, you know, the primary, what do you call it? Responsibility that a government has. Um, and, and so everybody from, you know, across the political spectrum demonizes this program in particular, which is, you know, which again, to us is, is pretty remarkable. And that's also why, you know, Alex Saab, this Venezuelan diplomat who was arrested, um, in Africa in Cape Cabo Verde for basically trying to procure um, materials, staples, foods for this program. Like he's a, he's got various, um, you know, he's one of these people that goes around and tries to do this. And the U.S. had him extradited. He's been extradited, and they accelerated the court case in Cabo Verde because the new government in Cabo Verde had announced that they were not going to extradite him. They were not going to allow him to be extradited. So all of these. Um, all of these violations of international law are happening in law, whatever the so-called <laughs> rules-based order or whatever they're calling it today um, are happening all in order to try to starve Venezuelans to the point on this theory of if we starve them enough, they will rise up and overthrow their government because 
um, they're going to be so miserable that they have to overthrow the people that we want them to overthrow, uh, which there's no real uh, evidence for this theory. I don't even know if any, the people, the proponents of this theory believe it. I think it's more like, a, you know, demonstration to anybody who would try to defy the U.S. that we can make you miserable and we can seal off your country and make it impossible for you to do anything if you um, if you try to assert any kind of independence. That's the clap. That's what I can say about the clap program. Can I just add one thing, uh, Brennan? I think import numbers are really important because Venezuela's economy, given that it's um, since the 1930s, it's been a major oil exporter. It's been extremely dependent on the one industry. So it, as a result of that, it, it's really stunted in many areas, and including agriculture. So it's, it's relied heavily on imports to feed itself. So in 2012, uh, Venezuela imported like imports were like $47 billion. Now, by 20, uh, 2016, that had fallen all the way by well more than half, to only 17 billion. That's in 2016. Uh, by 2017, that's when uh, Trump ramped up the Obama era sanctions to a really barbaric level and kept doing it. They've fallen all the way down to 8 billion. Okay, so 47 billion 2012, 17 billion by 2016, 8 billion by 2017. Okay, and by most accounts of people I've talked to, uh, lived in Venezuela, been an activist, journalist, uh, 2016, 17, in terms of uh, hunger, in terms of uh, it was probably the worst years of, of this whole um, economic war against Venezuela. And yet by, by 2020, uh, imports have fallen even more. They've fallen to like 5.2 billion, okay? But so how come imports are falling, fallen even more from the worst year, let's say it's 2017, They've fallen even more, significantly more, and yet people say there's actually, people are not suffering as much from hunger. A huge part of the explanation for that is the CLAP program, because it was a streamlined distribution system that more effectively got the government's uh, subsidized foods to the to people. And now it's, even by 2017, it was the vast majority of Venezuelans who were receiving it. It's, it's, it's increased even more. Um, and so it's a streamlined distribution to the CLAP program. Also, some shift maybe in dietary, uh, you know, uh, consumption, you know, where people are, are eating more of certain locally produced uh, items that they wouldn't have eaten before. So those things combined uh, to, uh, to, to offset the impact of the sanctions, despite the fact that the, the government's uh, income is, is constantly being attacked and its ability to import is, is, constantly, is, is degraded further. Now, in 2021, I, I have data from uh, an econo economist, it's actually against Maduro, but he, he shows that in, in, as of the 2021, it looks like there's gonna be a significant improvement in the, in the import situation. But still the, the CLAP program is a huge part of the reason that Venezuela has survived this onslaught. So the fact that the United States is going after that makes from, you know, from their sadistic uh, uh, point of view, it makes sense that they're uh, gonna attack this program as much as possible. And in fact, only three days before, uh, you know, people might, might forget, but in February of 2019, it, you know, a lot of people were concerned the United States might actually stage an, uh, an invasion of Venezuela when they were trying to, uh, they pulled this stunt where they were trying to uh, say they were trying to ram food into uh, food shipments into uh, through the Colombian border. And, um, 
it was it was you know, we, we discussed why it's outrageous propaganda you know because the Venezuela was receiving already international aid and and if they wanted to help all they had to do was <laughs> relieve the sanctions and donate to the aid that was already to humanitarian groups already in the, in the country but um, only three days before that aid stunt took place, Amnesty International wrote a report basically vilifying the CLAP program, saying that it's dominated by uh, armed supporters of uh, Nicolas Maduro. Okay, so that's Amnesty International only three days before this major propaganda stunt, uh, being, uh, being, as we might say, useful idiots for, for this really vile campaign. Yes. I mean, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch pop up a lot in the book. Of course, there is a whole chapter on these so-called human rights organizations and how they have acted in a very consistent manner. We can talk about that, especially when we open up chat. It's not just in the chapter, but throughout the book, when you're talking about CLAP, when you're talking about other uh, things. I mean, there's there's only one particular incident I'd want to highlight before moving on, and that it has to do with what you said and what Justin said about Guaido and how it seems to be one ongoing coup attempt once he was introduced. Uh, there were many bizarre incidents. We might recall them from media coverage not too long ago, just before the pandemic, from things like the attempt to uh, invade Venezuela by a group of paramilitaries, for example. But one incident was the what happened at a particular bridge. Uh, there was a kind of aid stunt that you referred to in 2019 when a lot of attention was directed towards a bridge when they were calling for aid to come into the country. And there's issues with why that's unusual. And then there was the reaction by the CBC and US politicians and Amnesty International. So can you tell us what was this aid stunt? You know, how did that relate to the Guaido coup attempts? And, and how was the US reaction to that? I see Justin's guy. Yeah. Um... The aid stunt was in February of 2019. The United States had, in January, recognized Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela, uh, which was ridiculous. And we get into the, the book why you know, there's no basis in the Constitution for, for that having been done. But um, the um, aid stunt was, like I said, they, they manufactured this myth that uh, this lie that Maduro was not allowed, that you know, the country's starving and Maduro was just not allowing aid to get through. So we're going to have to ram it through the Colombian border. And uh, during that whole month, I think the, the, we highlighted four people, Pompeo, Marco Rubio, John Bolton, and Mike Pence. They, they tweeted about Venezuela something like well over 600 times. It was like 80% of their Twitter activity had to do with Venezuela. And it was all about trying to incite, trying to intimidate the uh, high command of the military to uh, to use this aid stunt as an excuse to say, okay, we have to turn on Maduro to let the aid through. You know, it was, it was very transparent. It didn't work. And it was extremely cynical because even outlets like Reuters had reported that Maduro had requested and was receiving uh, humanitarian aid from the UN. Because by then the country's under such extreme sanctions that you know he, he's, he's letting humanitarian aid come in to try to alleviate some of it. Um, but also, I mean, the, I mean, the key lie here was that US sanctions were already killing killing people and, and starving the country. And if, they, if the United States cared at all about the, the humanitarian situation, well, yeah, obviously you just end the sanctions. But what the CBC did was they just basically totally swallowed this, uh, this lie that, um, that Maduro was not allowing aid. So um, we actually contacted them and got them to make a correction in one of their articles where they acknowledged the fact, uh, you know, not 
basically acknowledge the fact, that, yeah, you know, okay, yeah, he has he has actually uh, requested aid, and he didn't just request it; he was receiving it. Um, but they still hung on. They still left the headline suggesting that he wasn't allowing aid into the country. And um, they also repeated, one of their articles also repeated this lie that he had blocked the bridge uh, uh, bordering Colombia and Venezuela uh, to prevent aid from coming through. In fact, that bridge was, was already blocked because it was under construction. You know, you, you typically don't allow people on, on roads that are, especially bridges that are under, still under construction. So, but they, they, uh, that, was, that lie was spread by, by Pompeo that picked up by the CBC and a whole bunch of Western outlets. And, you know, we, in our book, we try to focus on US media. We focus on some, sometimes on the Canadian media and we have a whole chapter devoted to the, uh, the coverage of the left-wing Guardian uh, from 2006 to 2012. Uh, and just showing that it's really the, the Western media that, that combines. So everywhere you look, again, it seems from all angles, everywhere you look, everyone's got the same message. You know, Maduro's a bad guy and, you know, nobody should shed any tears that he gets overthrown. Did you want to add anything to that, Justin? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that was an amazing story. Uh, if I followed a little bit of what happened to some of the, um, some of the soldiers who crossed, because uh, there was a whole thing that happened where a bunch of Venezuelans did defect and went into Colombia um so it was you know they made a big show of like people who were supposed to go into venezuela but then there was a whole thing they tried to do to try to create an armed incident right they were trying to they were trying to maybe start some kind of armed conflict between colombia and venezuela which again like that history goes back at least to 2002 uh of trying to trying to get colombia to do the fighting for them um, to, to overthrow Venezuela, which, um, you know, Colombia is not really in a position to do. So uh, as much as like Colombia is an ally, uh, an all weather ally or whatever of the United States and like under their thumb, Colombia is not really in a position to invade Venezuela, no matter uh, how badly the U.S. would like to see something like that happen. So that that kind of happened again. But these these guys, they went to they went into Colombia, where they were promptly sort of like in a semi semi prisoner situation in Colombia, not really allowed to go back and uh, they weren't being fed. And there's like all kinds of stories that came out of Colombia of the treatment of these uh, Venezuelan defectors that were just just appalling because, you know, they, once you accept being like a pawn in this kind of this kind of game, like it, you never actually it's it's never it's never a good it's not a good career choice, like to be that kind of pawn as the, there was also like the mercenaries from silver core or whatever they were called that were all caught and they're in jail in Venezuela now too. So it's um, all the people that try to do this on behalf of the, on behalf of the Americans, um, they always end up paying for it. Um, and probably, you know, probably Guaido is, is not, you know, why those time will probably come up too like it's it's um it's yeah it's 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 been very bad for for everybody involved you know the venezuelans of course suffer but so do all the all the people that are used as tools in the campaign against them yes now those in the audience uh you might want to start 
preparing your questions for chat. We're going to open up the chat soon. I know you are probably itching on certain issues. Uh, probably the last question I intend to ask uh, before we open it up uh, concerns that lurking sub element, that theme of Amnesty International Human Rights Watch. And I know Joe in particular has done work on this, but so has Justin. Um, it really, really comes across in the book that you're trying to show that the organizations we would count on to be neutral, unbiased arbiters of human rights are in fact quite biased or choose to portray things in a certain way. Seems to me with Amnesty and Human Rights Watch that they like to portray themselves as goalkeepers or scorekeepers looking inside a country at side A, side B, who's doing violations. But what's missing from that is the international dimension, where if someone from outside is doing something to a country, uh, in the case of sanctions, for example, uh, it's my understanding from the book that when they were looking at electoral violence or other issues in the streets of Venezuela, they... Uh, were actually asked to take sanctions and other pressure from the United States into account, but basically tried to dismiss that. So can you tell us, you know, what's their perspective on what counts as a human rights violation and, and, and what's external that they care about or don't care about when they're judging a country? Well, we mentioned uh, in the book, we, we contacted them in 2018 and we asked them to please comment on the Trump sanctions, which by then it was obvious just an absolutely barbaric escalation of an economic war that was going to starve people in Venezuela. And we asked them to comment on it. And their, their response to us was, no, we're, we're not going to comment on that. We don't think it's responsible to comment on that. And we also asked them, would you please comment on the fact that, uh, you know, guys like Pompeo and Trump and uh, Bolton, those guys were out, Rubio, were obviously trying to incite a military coup. Uh, could you please comment on that? And again, uh, they just told us flat out, no, we don't think it's responsible for us to comment on that. We want to focus only on what the government, what we think the Venezuelan government's doing wrong. So, I mean, what, what kind of, uh, I mean, I mean, that to me, that just takes the mask uh, right off. In fact, I was, I was kind of surprised they even replied, but, uh, and then there was kind of, there was a, we, uh, we did, there was a petition sent to them signed by people like John Pilger and, and Alfred Desais, and they have moderated, they have kind of changed their tune on that. Uh, but it's, it's, I mean, to use a vulgar term, it's basically just ass covering. I mean, you see this now with, uh, let's bring up Julian Assange, you know, uh, all these uh, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch are now pretending to be over because now it's, it's reached such a point that it's, it's really too conspicuous for them to sit back and not say anything about his case like they basically did for years. But, it, you know, it's basically just, uh, just covering themselves because, uh, you know, when it, they, they've showed their hands so many times. They show that they're not they're not about to confront uh, U.S. imperialism, no matter, no matter how uh, barbaric it is. They'll, they'll find excuses for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a good reason to listen to Joe and me, but to the extent that we can, unfortunately, discredit these human rights organizations, um, at least on the Venezuela file, it's, it's important. We felt like it was important to do that because um, it's the target of propaganda is like a lot of this propaganda is tar targets the anti-war movement or at least potential anti-war people. Um, and so if they can, um, the, like they are goalkeepers in a way, they just make sure that the rules of the game are such that 
they can only call something out of bounds if someone from the global south does it. In other words, their rules of amnesty or human rights watch are they're not against war on principle. So whenever Israel is bombing Lebanon or Gaza or whatever, you'll notice they don't say stop bombing. The organization, those organizations say, please do your bombing in a way that doesn't hurt civilians. Please make every effort to do this bombing in a way that minimizes harm to civilians, which is uh, a absolutely ridiculous thing to, to call for. It's almost like when I read something like that, I think it's almost worse than not saying anything at all. Like, what are you talking about? You're bombing a densely populated city full of, you know, children. Like, what do you think is going to happen? How do you bomb a city without harming civilians? Um, and it's the same with sanctions, right? They're sort of like, you know, please do your sanctions in a way that uh, doesn't hurt, hurt people. Like, how, how, who do, like, what right do they have to decide who eats and who starves? But of course, that's not, any of the human rights organizations concern, right? It's just how you prosecute these, uh, you know, evil campaigns. That's that's what the human rights organizations concern themselves with. Yes, as another academic observed, they seem to be more concerned about the right to tweet than the right to eat. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we've seen that a lot. I wanted to let people know a couple of things. First of all, yes, we have opened up the chat and Allison is going to be forwarding me questions uh, via email. And I believe we're, I'm already starting to receive some. So this is the time when you get to propose your questions there and our panelists will react. Um, now, I also wanted to make an important announcement and that is Professor Luis Acuna, the charged affairs of the Venezuelan embassy in Canada, speaking from Venezuela, is here with us today. He's present and he's in Venezuela because of a breakdown in relations that has been perpetuated by the government of Canada. So uh, he may, uh, perhaps we'll see in the chat, he might make some comments and uh, we'll bring that in, but uh, other people might want to comment about that. So I am starting to receive questions here and I have one uh, immediately from John Philpot, who's uh, of course highly involved in the issue of both Venezuela and Alex Saab. So John, who has read the book, says, this book is excellent. I wonder if you could suggest how we can link the judicial kidnapping of Alex Saab, and you might want to talk about that, but how to, how to link the judicial kidnapping of Alex Saab and our support for Venezuela. We are looking for the best way to move ahead. So what do you two think of that? I, I mean, it's absolutely the, the completely the correct um, way of calling it in the sense that it is absolutely a kidnapping. Um, the legal pretext is ridiculous. So, I mean, you know, we, we went through this with the Meng Wanzhou case too, right? It's like these, this, the law that he's alleged to have violated is itself um, not part of international law. It's, it's just a U.S., a uh, unilateral sanction, which is itself, um, you know, under like a UN special rapporteur has declared these, uh, you know, illegal. Um, it's, you know, unilateral coercive measures. There's a whole report. If you guys want to look on the United Nations website, there's a whole, there's a whole movement um, against these unilateral coercive measures. 
there's like a set of countries that are trying to defend the UN Charter. Um, and this, the, the sanctions against Venezuela, like the other sets of sanctions that the US is imposing on these different countries, um, are in violation of, of the principle of, of international law and of like basically the basic idea of, of international law, which is like the sovereignty of, of these different countries and um, their ability to relate to one another uh, in some kind of sensible, predictable framework. So the US violated diplomatic immunity. Um, they forced some third country to do a whole bunch of things that violated that country's own laws and then had him extradited uh, in a completely kind of political process. So yeah, um, it, solidarity with, and he, Alex Staub himself is a diplomat whose work, day-to-day -day work is basically trying to get uh, food to Venezuelans in spite of these sanctions. And so he is being charged with the crime of feeding Venezuelans that the Americans want to starve. So solidarity with Venezuela is absolutely uh, solidarity with Alex Saab. Um, there's, you know, everyone who's concerned, everyone in Venezuela is very concerned with this case. Um, people, uh, people who are watching Venezuela are concerned with this case. So it's absolutely um, a, a major fight. And I mean, you know, this is, like we thought that the Meng Wanzhou case was was a very hard uphill fight, um, in terms of you know they had they had physical possession of Meng. Um, it was going to be very hard to get her out of pry her out of there. Uh, but she's home. She's home in China now. So like this can be done. These these kidnappings can be um, defeated. Uh, and I think, um, you know, the, the, uh, lots of things are different. Venezuela is not a power in the world like China is by any means. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the struggle, you know, we, we have to do everything that we can um, on this case uh, as we, you know, as with. In my, in my opinion, one of the, the best pieces to read to, uh, to get up to speed on this case quickly and thoroughly is by Dan Kavalik. He's a human rights lawyer, and he's written a piece for the uh, Council of Hemispheric Affairs, which is superb because the, the case is, there's so many levels. You know, I hate to sound like AOC, you know, but there's the micro and the macro. You know, there's, the, <laughs> there's the level of, um, you know, the diplomatic immunity, the fact that there's no extradition treaty between uh, Cape Verde and uh, the United States, the fact that he was arrested before an Interpol uh, notice was even issued, the fact that the West African court a regional court uh, ruled his uh, Saab's uh, detention in, um, in Cape Verde to be illegal. There's a whole slew of, of irregularities and just trampling of the law on that level. But then there's the, the wider level I tried to talk about in fair.org in, in a recent piece where it said, you know, the, the US media is not making any secret of the fact that, that Saab is being targeted because they want the sanctions to, be, to do even more damage. They feel that he's a key guy uh, helping them uh, Get around the sanctions and i mentioned with the clap program they have uh like since 2017 alleviated the hunger through through all the different programs the clap program and the different things that they've done to support it and Saab is one of the key players so they they are very open in the u.s media about the fact that they want the sanctions to do even more damage 
and that's why they're going after Saab, and they're they're not making a secret of it. So that on that level alone, you know, it just it just speaks volumes about how uh, debased uh, public debate is in, in in the United States and in Canada and in the Western countries. Because again, a point we try to make is that they are all on the same page. You know, I think to some extent, countries like Canada and the Europeans they hide behind the U.S. They don't maybe come out a lot of times as openly as an aggressor, but they, when it, when it counts, they tend to go along. So uh, yeah, the Alex Saab case deserves its own, uh, deserves its own event, actually. It's, 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 uh, it's so important on so many levels. Yes, and we have the right people here to be part of that, from yourself to John Philpott and others. Uh, we'll be hearing more about that, of course, because this long arm, this long arm extraterritorial actions by the United States, you know, they have significant impacts. I know Justin has addressed this issue with various guests like KJ No and others uh, on his podcast, uh, The Anti-Empire Project, uh, where it's not just Venezuela, it's not just China, it's also France, it's also other countries. And uh, it's, it's something we've dealt with in the coalition with regard to both China and Venezuela now. So if you look in the chat section in the past, I know there has been postings about the information for Alex Saab. So I would highly encourage uh, people to get involved with that campaign. I just received a question just now from Luis Acuna. And it's uh, the question is, did you go deeper? Did you go deeper into the involvement of Canada in the overthrow of Maduro? Because Canada is the leader of the Lima group. And that's a very important point. So maybe you can tell us about Canada and, and the Lima group and, and how that's. <laughs> yeah, Peru is no longer part of the Lima group, which is pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Lima group is such a joke, at least when they were trying to overthrow Aristide and Haiti, at least they called it the Ottawa initiative. Um, they they kind of had the decency to name the right city that from which they were trying to overthrow the, the government. Um, calling it the Lima Group is was preposterous then, but it's 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 even more of a comedy show now that uh, now that Peru is is out of it. Um, I mean, we do, uh, you know, we do talk about Canada a little bit, and and Canada's Canada. What Canada does here in, on the Venezuela case is a lot like, uh, you know, strangely, it's a lot like analogous it's analogous to to what human rights watch or amnesty international does canada has a an undeserved reputation for being somewhat more of a fair dealing or a, a fair um dealer i guess in north america with latin american countries so they can you know i guess it's like a it's like a card you can overplay and i i think it's pretty clear canada has overplayed this now to the point where they've lost any of that credibility, but um, they had this card so that when Canada would do something nasty, like support a coup or support sanctions or whatever, um, it would seem like it was coming from a kinder, gentler place than, than uh, the US. Um, so the idea was that as part of this system, Canada could then do certain more, more multilateral seeming things than the US could do on their own. But um, yeah, we, do, yeah. we do cite a poll in the book where we talk about the fact that uh, the Canadian government has a lot of credibility with the U.S. public, unfortunately. I hope that's, as Justin suggested, that's gone down uh, because it's, it's done horrendous things, not just regarding Venezuela, with, with Israel. It's become 
it's unmasked itself, one would hope. So I hope that goes down. But it's still, I think it still has that, that undeserved credibility that the uh, U.S. government can rely on to, to get, it on, get people on board with the, with the, with the nasty things they do. And, that, and like Justin says, just like Amnesty International and uh, Human Rights Watch and uh, the Europeans, and uh, you know, it's, it's a way to make it sound like everybody's just on board with the same thing. So if you don't like Trump, you don't trust Trump, well, but there's that nice guy, Justin Trudeau, who's kind of saying a lot of the same things. Yes. And there's some general questions I'd like to ask about the book, and that could happen at some point. This is not one of our mammoth events that go on for two and a half hours. We only have half an hour left. But I just did receive a question that's perhaps a rhetorical question. I don't know. But it's uh, from Sally Latch. And the question is, will we ever stop the crimes that are our economic and political system? Uh, how does that relate to what the U.S. goal is in Venezuela? And, you know, does helping Venezuela help us here in Canada? You know, my answer to that would be a little different. I would just say, like, that's exactly what Chavez wanted to do. And, you know, I, I could say arguably Maduro wants to do too. But, like, Chavez, Chavismo, the the way that Chavez invoked Bolivar, um, and, and Jesus, because <laughs> he was always uh, invoking uh, Christianity as well. But like the way that he interpreted those things and the way that he, uh, that the Chavismo kind of vision of like sovereign countries um, developing, uh, helping each other in solidarity um, and, um, and, you know, building these regional alliances, the Alba, you know, the, the, Bolivarian area of the Americas, the Telesur network, all these, all these visions that Chavez had were exactly this. They were like a, a, a vision against um, imperialism and a, a vision to uh, of a of a sovereign, um, you know, a, a sovereign world where people were able to express themselves through through the, you know, the instruments of their own constitutions. Like Chavez was really big on democratic processes and constitutions and referendums and consultation and and self-organization, right? Like, um, you know, one of the things that was striking when I went, I've I've been there a few times and visited communities and it's like, there's an interesting dynamic where the better self-organized the community was, the better they were able to get things from the government. because you, if you have self-organization and a government that's sort of responsive, you can do amazing things, right? And so, you know, I think so. I, I think we could, you know, I think the, those ideas are exactly uh, what um, Venezuela is about, like what that movement in Venezuela is about and why, you know, why the U.S. is so vindictive. It's, you know, I don't think it's about, like Joe said, there's resources everywhere. Um it's really about whether there can there can ever be a challenge to the idea that the U.S. you know owns the world and that every person and everything in the world is the U.S. is to dispose of, um, and that is what is challenged by everything from you know the Chavistas in Venezuela or indigenous movements, land defenders, um, you know Palestinians. All of these all of these people are in some way fighting for, um, you know, self-determination. 
uh, in the face of imperialism. And, you know, for us, a lot of what we're writing in this book, even though we focus on what the U.S. is doing in the, in the media campaign, we, uh, we're inspired by Chavismo, you know. It's an, it's an inspiring vision. Well, on that subject, there, there is a question that's come up about that, which is maybe a more critical lens. It's from Yuri, Yuri S. And he says, was Justin or Joe familiar with the studies of Julia Buxton regarding the crisis in Venezuela and Maduro's leadership. Uh, she's, she's against measures to overthrow him uh, and the socialist policies, but is critical of that leadership. I'll let you respond with regard to Buxton and other studies regarding any crisis in the leadership. Well, I would say there, there were definitely, we, we touch on problems within Chavismo. Well, one big one that tends not to get attention even from, from critics is just the impunity of the, that the opposition's obvious, all, always enjoyed in Venezuela, whether it's the coup attempts that we talked about, whether it's the assassination of, of Chavista peasants in the countryside. And, and we, we get into trying to explain why that happens. And part of it is, of course, of, uh, can you wage a war on corruption and opportunism within your own ranks when, when you have this external threat from the most powerful country on earth? I mean, it, it's kind of an obvious point, but I mean, how do you wage war on everyone at the same time? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, again, it, I think sometimes we, we, we make the mistake of, of uh, we have the fact often we make the mistake of, of applying an impossible standard to countries that are under attack. I mean, especially uh, here in, in Canada or in the United States, our focus has to be on, okay, what can we do to hold our governments accountable and why do we fail to do that? Like, why, why is there a blockade on Cuba for 60 years? Why does somebody like Elaine Abrams walk free and go back to do the same crimes. I mean, the, we should approach countries like Venezuela with a lot of contrition and a lot of humility because we have failed, I have just to be blunt, we have failed to hold anybody accountable despite all these vaunted freedoms that we think we have in, in these countries. So I, I think we have to be cautious with critiques because we, uh, you can, they can be made, of course, and we do make them in the book regarding economic policy and some other things, but we just have to be aware that you know, when you have this humongous external threat from abroad, you have to take that into account. If you're not taking into account, then you can end up uh, contributing to the vilification that makes these crimes possible. I don't think we cite Buxton. I read Buxton's book um, about like Punto Fijo and she, she wrote a book like I think in the late 90s about Venezuela that I read. Oh, or maybe there was some Chavismo in it, but it was early. Like I, I read it around 2002 and I don't think it was a new book at the time. Um, I don't know what she's saying now, honestly, but um, I'm not surprised there are, there is a, there's a little cottage and I don't want to, I don't want to diminish Buxton too much. Honestly, her, her old book was fine, but um, I do think there's a bit of an industry of like, I was fine with this project until this point, but now this is the last straw. And like, there's lots of people that feel that way about Cuba. There's always people that feel that way about Nicaragua. There's always people that feel that way about. So I think, I think like Chavez was cool, but Maduro is not, is just that, that idea. Like I, there's other people, I'm not going to name them. Joe knows, uh, you know, who, who they are, but there's like a, also a very high profile person who was very pro Chavez and is very anti, anti Maduro now. And it's just like, I don't really have, I, I don't have time for that. 
Yes. Um, and, and that's a big discussion. And I, it's exciting to think about what might come out uh, from you and Joe on that and, and the various conferences that are coming up. Um, I had mentioned earlier that our official media sponsor for the event is the Canada Files, which, by the way, if you go there, if you look up the Canada Files, there is an article towards the top about the case of Alex Saab. It's uh, by John Philpott and, and a friend of his. It's uh, it's right up there. It's a great summary of, of the case and their perspective on that. So I highly encourage people to go to the Canada Files and especially go look at immediately at that article about Alex Saab. Now, because uh, Aiden, I believe he's present with us, um, as the official media sponsor, he gets to pop up and ask a question if he likes. And I think that's being arranged behind the scenes. Uh, Allison's been making everything work and has uh, been talking with Aiden. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll transfer over. Uh, Allison, if you want, uh, you can put Aiden on to uh, speak on behalf of the Canada Files. Aiden is there with us. He should be able to speak once uh, all the controls get figured out. Aiden? Yeah, for sure. Uh... I think in the case, uh, obviously, I think the co-focus of my question really would be the case of uh, of Alex, Alex Saab, of course, is in terms of one of the major movements that really just finished uh, here was obviously the movement to free Mawan Joe. And I guess the point is, what potential lessons or assistance could we perhaps, as Canadians, uh, as anti-war Canadians, be looking to provide or how could we be assisting uh, campaigns like the freedom for, for Alex Saab uh, really from here? Because obviously Canada doesn't have a direct role in this, but I think there is expertise to be applied. So I'm curious what you should think. Oh man. <laughs> the thing about like my, I have a, I don't know what, I don't know the law that well. Like, I don't know legal scholarship that well. I suspect there's a school for people who know the law, maybe you know, but I suspect there's a school of legal studies that uh, my belief corresponds to, uh, which is that the law doesn't have much impact in the world and that it's, you know, kind of a raw power. Um, and the law is just like, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> yeah or like you know uh, you know i so i i don't think that mung Wanzhou was um persecuted by law and i don't think she was freed because uh, a good legal good le sound legal case was made and like um you know there was there was some discussion of like if had she gone before a u.s court uh, her case would have had to have been overthrown because uh, of all these procedural irregularities. I don't believe that the law works that way. I don't believe the courts work that way. So the all of which is to say, um, I don't know how much the legal, uh, you know, the legal capacity, which I have no doubt was, was considerable of Mung's team uh, could transfer to a, another case um, just because the whole legal, political, uh, international situation um, is unique in every case. So, you know, other cases I've been involved with where it's like the court comes down and makes a judgment and it's like, well, the judge has said this and it's like, now, now it's definitive. And it's like, like hell, it's definitive. The, the judge can say whatever they want. Like if the situation changes, 
that judge will have to reverse their their decision as well. So um, you know uh, the the pessimistic side is that you know legal uh, again like legal capacity or legal arguments may not have much sway in this transparently bullshit case. Um, but uh, on the flip side, like political agitation always. Uh, has a powerful role. And if it can reach the appropriate threshold, then we will see Alex Staub um, free and back in Venezuela. So that's, that's, that's how I, that's the only way I can answer that question, Aiden. I think it's a great question and it, it's an important point, but I, I, I can't offer much more than that. Well, you know, I think Howard Zinn made a similar point. You know, you could look at the US constitution at various points in its history, and you should see, well, it's rock solid against slavery or Jim Crow, and yet it wasn't, right? It wasn't at all. So the, the law, the law can can come into can be applied, but it takes just a pushback against the propaganda system for that to happen. Uh, uh, so, you know, if you look at Prince's just now, uh, Steve Donzinger, who defeated Chevron in Ecuador, you know, he's go, he's got he's in jail right now. And if you look at the legal arguments, there's no way that should have happened. A private prosecutor working with links to Chevron prosecuted because the Department of Justice refused the case, uh, you know, and uh, and so on. I mean, if you go into that case, you can find any number of legal arguments they think should have should have held, should have prevented this from happening, but they don't because until it reaches a point where enough people are, are aware and pushing back, then it, that just so it's 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 there's no. You know, nice answer, except that we just have to push back and, and try to spread the word as best we can, and, and not and also light a fire under our supposedly progressive uh, politicians. You know, to uh, like you know, people in the NDP. You know, light a fire under them as best we can to 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 actually speak up to do something. You know, to to not be useless. Yeah. Any any break. Th this is a case where like breaking breaking the consensus is going to be really important. So any anywhere you can find to like any weak point in the consensus uh, that can be found to, to try to break that consensus is key here. Um, any 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 amnesty person that you can try to get or any that, that's also why we pressure them so much, right? Is because um, the whole the like the brick wall of consensus of institutions left to right is is what makes it so hard for people to see what's what's going on. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it's a wonderful sentiment from both of you about the Alex Saab case and what we could or should do. You know, I'm just, I got the book here, you know, and it, it is called Extraordinary Threat, the US Empire, the Media and 20 Years of Coup Attempts in Venezuela. So I just wanted to direct things back to that for a moment because I'm wondering, maybe you can help me. I'm wondering if there's a kind of North Korea factor here with regard to uh, reporting on Venezuela, the, there's an idea out there that there's a, a level or scale of countries that you can lie about. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes from, you know, like maybe Cuba towards the lower or medium end uh, and all the way up to North Korea, where you can make up anything. anything. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you pointed out that it's easier for the domestic media in Canada, like the CBC, to lie about foreign things than about domestic things. So as these coup attempts went on, and you have six coup attempts or so or more at this point, I'm just wondering, like, how did the 
was there any correlation between the coup attempts and the outrageousness of the reporting? Like, did the reporting on the coup attempts become more outrageous over the past 20 years? Well, yeah, I mean, since the, the Venezuelan economy uh, declined, you know, started into, entered into crisis around 2014 with the collapse of oil prices uh, and uh, the ramping up of U.S. aggression with Obama, uh, you know, obviously things became worse and it be, they became able to lie more liberally. For example, in our chapter about Rory Carroll, we mentioned that uh, his, his, his vilification of Chavismo during, during its best years was more subtle. You know, he said it was not, you know, it's a hybrid. It's not really a democracy. It's, a, it's oppressive. It's, he's running the country into the ground. You know, he's, uh, he, uh, you know, he's, um, he's abusive with opponents. He's, you know, and all there's corruption. There's all these things that, that uh, Rory Carroll for spent years saying when Chavismo was actually re reducing uh, poverty very quickly, and reducing inequality, all, all the, the best things were happening. Um, you know, he was still able to kind of lay the groundwork uh, that they were usually able to build upon when, uh, when hard times came later. So it's, it, and even, you know, for example, the way he wrote about the, the coup is very common. I mean, this is why his, his, his uh, we focused on his book, who was widely praised uh, all over the media spectrum. And, you know, he basically portrayed uh, U.S. involvement in the 2002 coup as this kind of really dubious allegation that Chavez threw out there for, uh, for, uh, political reasons. And, and if we, we talk about how that's, that's just a, a lie. I mean, it's, it's just, the United States was deeply involved in, in everything and every, in, in, you know, the IMF, for example, which has always been a, a U.S. dominated institution, came out immediately when Chavez was overthrown and offered loans to the Carmona dictatorship. Well, for, it was only in power for two days and yet they managed to get out there and uh, offer it any loans they wanted. And now fast forward to today, the IMF does not allow uh, the Maduro's government to access special drawing rights, which uh, the IMF issued and under tremendous pressure so that uh, basically it's a form of currency, uh, international currency that governments can, can uh, access to deal with emergencies. And uh, they're not allowing Maduro's government to access it. And their excuses that, well, you know, we're not sure that Maduro is recognized by enough governments. It's always been recognized by the majority of governments in the world. Meanwhile, the IMF in 2002, stepped forward and immediately offered loans to a government that literally, the Carmona's dictatorship, with nobody in the world recognized except for maybe the United States and Panama. You know, so you just see how the, the, the tremendous hypocrisy has always been there. But yeah, it's ramped up in since 2014. It's gotten even worse, and uh, it's um, you just like it's just like Justin said, you have to find ways to try to break that consensus, and then if, if you can find enough ways, it can crumble. Very good. I think uh, shortly we're going to have another question from Aiden, our official media sponsor being the Canada Files. Um, but there was one thing, the annoying little brain bug I wanted to address first, and that is the issue of the once prosperous Venezuela. Uh, because this book is largely about media, right? It's about people are here because they know that it's being reported on in a dubious fashion. And so you always hear that meme, oh, the once prosperous Venezuela. So what is that meant to make us think? And how does it correspond to periods of Venezuela's prosperity? Actually, let, I'd let Joe do that, take, start that one too. Okay, uh, well, it's important to note that uh, in 1999, when Chavez first takes over, Venezuela has like a 50% poverty rate. Okay, it, um, 
five years, something like five years before Chavez took over, the New York Times in an article reported that only 59% of Venezuelans uh, could uh, afford to eat more than once a day. I mean, this is this is in 1995 or so, uh, many years before Chavez took over, uh, was first elected. So early on, in early on in Chavez's government, the media wasn't using this once prosperous uh, trope. You know, it was admitting, yeah, you know, Chavez came to office because uh, because of this tremendous poverty that Venezuela has, despite its oil wealth. And but now, but he's kind of he's overstepping. He's too oppressive. He doesn't tolerate this. You know, the same the tropes that they they built on for for uh, twenty years. But um, by 20, this once prosperous lie really came into vogue after twenty fourteen. Now now suddenly we're constantly getting bombarded with these um, with this idea that you know. Venezuela was like this wonderful place until Chavismo came around and ruined it. So the, the like often happens in, in Western media is they 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 rewrite what, even with the, with their own with their own reporting debunks, right? Uh, you know, another thing to remember, like we uh, we wrote about in our, in that chapter, is that uh, you know the Caracazo massacre of 1989, where the or five day period, the um, Venezuelan government uh, Venezuelan government under Carlos Andrés Pérez, the security forces massacred hundreds, some people say thousands, 1,500 seems to be the number of people, uh, poor people that uh, the government killed over a five-day period in 1989. I mean, that's that's more possibly by an order of magnitude. That, that it, is, it is by an order of magnitude worse than anything that all the political violence in Venezuela over the last 20 years. But, and uh, George Bush uh, Sr., uh, he called uh, Carlos Andres Perez, and this is in his own presidential library, to commiserate with Perez, to you know, to, to console him over what he was, <laughs> the perpetrator was doing uh, to impose this uh, this uh, program. And then years late, a few years later, two years later, we, we talk about how the New York Times did articles in which the the Caracazo massacre was not even a factor. They, they news articles uh, calling praising Carlos Andres Perez for how um, charismatic he was. And, how democratic Venezuela is. So uh, you see where the, the 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 media the media always just follows the lead of, of what you know what Washington wants when it comes to foreign countries. If if no matter how oppressive the government is, it's called uh, it's called a democracy if, if Washington gets along with it. So the, the once prosperous is just like I say, it's, it's a kind of a uh, a thing that came into being in uh, around 2014 or so. And it's 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 a rewrite not only of history, but it's a rewrite even to a large extent of their own reporting. Absolutely, absolutely. These are the kind of media myths that the book takes on. It looks, you know, it's a very Chomsky and, and Edward S. Herman type analysis. I think you want to follow in that tradition to some extent. And so uh, it does to that treatment what it has been done to Palestine, the Middle East, and so forth. So we can all applaud that. And speaking of media, I've been notified, I think, again, um, Aidan Jonah, Canada Files, as I mentioned earlier, may be present to ask another question for Joe and Justin. So let's go uh, over to Aiden, if that's possible. All right, for sure. Is my audio working? Great. Okay, so I think it was Joe, you were mentioning um, about this, uh, this kind of tendency. Uh, and I think it's something most of us on the anti-war movement, if we've been around for long enough, have always noticed is this, uh, this desire for kind of purity uh, over really engaging with the reality uh, of the situation where countries are really under the gun of imperialism. It's interesting because as someone who keeps an incredibly close eye on like uh, fellow kind of 
leftish media, I've noticed this resurgence in complaints about campism and, uh, oh, and of course the best one, uh, tankies. Uh, now, you might have seen this, Hamilton Coalition was the target of one in uh, Briarpatch a few months ago. And now I'm sure you've seen the whole, whatever that hell that was, a rant or something in the breach. Uh, what what do you think about uh, campism and tankies? Do you think we're all evil tankies for supporting uh, countries that are under the gun of uh, imperialism? That's just the kind of question that a tanky would ask, Aiden. Uh, I I can't I can't I can't respond to that with anything but but ridicule. Honestly, I just don't. I you know, like. I, I don't know. I don't. It's it, it's 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 so you're you're I <laughs> you're right. You're 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 right. Um, your response is right. And and Joe, uh, I think, had some responses on social media that I went and clicked like button on. <laughs> but I don't really. Yeah, I don't. We just have to do what we do, you know. I'm not going to worry about being called a tanky or I, I can't. The other thing, the one thing I will say about it, this is actually one thing I will say about it, and and I said I said this in general terms on social media, but in but what I what I can say about it is this. In in our book, we talk about the human rights organizations, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and so on, and the way that they use their credibility as advocates of human rights to kind of further um, imperialist objectives by demonizing uh, people that are resisting and implicitly glorifying the people that are actually the aggressors. When, um, when they overstep and do this uh, too obviously, I actually find it a, a useful teachable moment. It's like, look at Kenneth Roth, look at what he's done, look at what he's doing online and realize that Human Rights Watch is not your friend. Um, so in a sense, there are, there are benefits to when people who seem to be on your side lose it and call you an Assadist or a tanky or an anti-Semite or a campist or whatever it is. It's like, it is not easy identifying friends from enemies in this environment. And so when people do that, it's sort of like, we have to just listen and we have to just make a note of it. And then we have to move on with our lives. And, and that's sort of the way I see it. Yeah, I would just add to that. I, I think part of that's just from Western privilege too. I don't, especially when I mean, not that this. I mean, there are people who kind of take these positions or in the global South as well. But in, in the Western countries, I think it's because we don't. Uh, there, you know, if like for instance, if there's ever a coup in the United States, it'll be by some right wing extremists trying to prevent a progressive government. Okay, but it's never going to be from a foreign power. There's just nobody who's got the the ability to do that. So we don't face that extraordinary threat. So we, it's easy for us to, to, uh, to tell Cuba or Venezuela, like, you know, come on, you know, let, let your enemies uh, have access to your media or something. You know, it's because we don't face that threat, you know? So it's easy for us to, to lecture others on, you know, basically asking them to commit suicide to be pure enough so we'll support them. And, you know, it, it's, it's really outrageous. Um, yeah, so that, that's just uh, my two cents there. And also, I guess we didn't talk about it yet. The reason the book's called Extraordinary Threat is because Obama declared Venezuela officially an extraordinary threat in 2015 when he first 
Uh-oh. Did we just lose Joe somehow? Froze. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, it's almost time to go in any sense, but uh, extraordinary th- threat. Yes. Um, it was a bit obvious, but we didn't cover it. And it does refer to how the United States labeled Venezuela. Uh, Justin, maybe you just want to mention why they thought it was necessary to use that kind of language to to label Venezuela. Yeah, just the, to, to do sanctions on a country, uh, they have to be declared uh, an extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. So they did this in the 80s with Nicaragua, declaring Nicaragua an extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States, which is like utterly ridiculous. And Venezuela is also ridiculous. But we, you know, we thought, actually, I think it may have been our editors. I, I can't remember whose idea it was. I'm not sure if it was Joe's. I know it wasn't mine, but it was either Joe's or one of our editors thought that that would make a pretty good title because it's quite the inversion, right? It's like the U.S legislators get up every year or whatever and declare that the U- the Venezuela is an extraordinary threat when in fact, you know, the only threat is to Venezuela from the U.S. Absolutely. And of course, would you like to indicate where people could or should ideally purchase the book? I actually am ashamed to admit, I, I think I ordered mine quickly on Amazon, but I know it's at multiple retailers. Would you like to just suggest where and how people should pick up the book? Just a monthly review. I think you can get it from the public. It's always most favorable to get it from the publisher directly. So that's where I'd. uh... And that's the event. So thanks for listening. Thanks for staying with us. It's a great book. Pick up Extraordinary Threat from Monthly Review or another bookseller. The event took place on Saturday, October 30th, and it was sponsored by the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, World Beyond War, Canada, the Canadian Peace Congress, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, Mobilization Against War and Occupation, the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba, and the Fire This Time Movement for Social Justice. And Alison Bodine performed technical work on the event. The official media sponsor was the Canada Files.